the Bible says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogues, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The face of an angel. The title of the sermon this evening is this, Stephen Stand, Stephen Stoned. He took a stand and boy, he paid the ultimate price. He gave his life. For that stand. You know, we love to look at stories in the Bible uh, such as the three Hebrew boys. They got thrown in the fiery furnace and they survived. We like to look at the stories of Daniel in the lion's den. He was thrown to the lion and survived. We think about David going in the valley to fight Goliath or, and he, he came out victorious. Not every time that someone took the stand for Jesus did they live. Sometimes it cost them their life. But even in that, God had a master plan in place. He was going to use that uh, in order to get the gospel around the globe and get his church going. So we'll look at that title this evening, and let's pray pray as we open the service. Lord, open the sermon. Lord, thank you tonight. Help us to understand the message, and Lord, help us to uh, grow as a result of the message. Give us a fervency for your word and your work the way that Stephen had. Lord, help us to follow the same pattern that Stephen followed. And Lord, as the world gets more hostile toward our faith, or may we become more fervent in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in Acts chapter 1, where we began, uh, we see that Jesus ascended up into heaven, and he commissioned his disciples to do four things. He commissioned them to go. He commissioned them to preach the gospel to baptize, and to disciple. Those four things. Go, preach the gospel, baptize, disciple. And uh, Jesus himself had already primed Jerusalem for a revival. He walked around Israel, mostly Capernaum and in Galilee, but spent quite a a bit of time in Jerusalem um, priming the pump, if you would, uh, if you will, and preparing Jerusalem for a big revival. You see, their great prophet, Jesus, had been beaten and killed by the nation's own religious establishment. But then something marvelous happened. You know what happened. Three days later, Jesus stood up from the dead, and he proved to be more than just a great prophet. He proved to be the Messiah indeed. The one who had been promised for thousands of years. The one who had been talked about and taught to every Jewish boy and girl. The word Messiah was as common as any word in a Jewish home. The boys and girls who grew up in Jewish homes all knew about the promised Messiah. The promised Messiah. They had been taught it since they were a small child. It had been ingrained in them uh, uh, beyond a point uh, that that, uh, is even explainable. Culturally, it was a part of who they were. When Peter and the disciples began to proclaim the message of salvation to the Jews, these folks were ready to believe. And believe they did. Thousands upon thousands were joining the Jerusalem church. And the Jewish religious establishment was losing its power, was losing its credibility fast. Not only that, they, also, they were also viewed by these new Christians as the enemy. Because they had killed Jesus. They had killed Jesus. In the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, we looked at those last week, Peter and the other pastors created a new position of leadership. Seven men who were the servants of God, followers of Christ, and filled with the Holy Ghost, were chosen to help 
minister to the needs of the people, that position would later be given the title of deacon. Look back at Acts chapter 6 and look at verse number 7. Acts chapter 6 and look at verse number 7. The Bible says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Look here. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. A great company of the priests. Now the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, and other Jewish leaders were losing folks to Christianity out of their own ranks. You see what's going on here? The church has grown, and now this religious establishment is losing its power. People are becoming hostile. The popularity is turning against the religious establishment. And not only that, people are beginning to jump ship. Priests are leaving and joining the church by way of salvation. The tension was building, and things were about to get ugly. Taking a stand for Jesus was about to mean a whole lot more than just a slap on the wrist. Stephen was a deacon, but that's not all that Stephen was. This deacon would take a strong stand against the forces of evil opposing the church and would end up being the church's first martyr. Stephen would be stoned to death because of his stand for the gospel, because of his stand for his Savior. The Bible teaches that a Holy Ghost-filled Christian is a Christian who will stand and proclaim God's truth with boldness. Some of you here lack boldness. Some of you here lack the willingness to stand. Let me be clear. If you are filled with the Holy Ghost, if He is in charge of your heart, if His boldness has filled you, if He has filled you, His boldness will flow out of you. You say, well, Pastor Lejeune, easy for you to say, you're a dominant personality. You're an outgoing type. You've been trained to be a preacher. That's easy for you to stand up and say, I'm little old me, and little old me is a quiet uh, soul who's introverted, and I find it hard to, to stand up and proclaim truth. My friend, it's not about my personality up against your personality. It's my willingness to yield to the Spirit versus your willingness to yield to the Spirit versus all of our willingness to yield to the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is calling the shots in our heart, then by default we'll proclaim the gospel with boldness. You say, well, I'm a woman. That doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Listen, I've met some pretty bold women who can proclaim the gospel just as well as any man I've met. How many know Sister Gail that used to attend here? Boy, Sister Gail, if, if you walked in the door and you were here more than five minutes uh, and she wasn't up in your grill asking you if you were saved, then, then something was off. That's just what she did. That's who she was. How many of you here, uh, was anybody here led to the Lord by Sister Gail? Anybody? How many of you here, the first time you visited, Sister Gail witnessed to you, tried to witness to you? Okay, with the Vars, Miss Flute, with Andres, with the Jason. Uh, she was all over that. And listen, uh, we've had other ladies in our church who were bold in their proclamation. Whether you're a man or woman, God has called you to yield yourself to the Spirit and through that to boldly proclaim the gospel. There will be those who oppose our faith. We must stand for what is right. The more fervent we are in our faith, the more powerful our stand Will be. Let me say that again. The more fervent we are in our faith, the more bold in our stand we will be. Some wonder why God would let one of his choicest servants die. Why would God stand there and let Stephen be stoned to death? Let me just say this evening, and somebody here needs to hear this. This might be the only thing somebody gets out of the message. But boy, I think it's good. God always has a plan. Always. You say, well, well, if God has a plan, then couldn't have God accomplished that plan by keeping Stephen alive? Maybe, but that wasn't God's choice. Listen, my friend, God's always in charge. Through good times and bad times, when good happens in the world, when evil happens in the world, by man's own free will, you can't outsmart God. God has a plan. And here evil is going to rise up and kill Stephen. But God even had a plan in that. His sovereignty is always intact. Some of you already know this, but Saul was standing there. And the coats were laid at the feet of Saul. Saul over 
Saul the murder of Stephen. You think that God did not use that in order to reach him? By the way, Saul's name would be changed to Paul. And Paul would go on to write half the New Testament. Boy, this man Saul was in charge of Stephen's death. And God was going to use Stephen's death to give him a fervency toward the gospel. The truth is, and I don't want anybody to miss this here, if Paul had not done what he did, there's a really good chance we wouldn't be sitting here tonight having church. Paul's, Paul's pushing of the gospel to the Gentiles. We're Gentiles. Amen? There might be a few folks in here that have some Jewish blood in them, but most of us are Gentiles in here. We are saved as a result of Paul's ministry. Would have Paul given his life to the gospel ministry if God had not allowed Stephen to be stoned? Would have Paul been as fervent in his gospel? These are questions I don't have the answer for. One can only speculate, but boy, God had a plan in that. God always has a plan. Always has a plan. You say someone wronged me. How could God let that happen? God always has a plan. I don't care what someone does to you. God's ways are better than our ways. He can take any wrongdoing toward you and he can turn it into something good. We're going to look at four thoughts this evening as we consider this topic. Stephen's stand, Stephen stoned. Let's jump into tonight. Point number one, notice Stephen's ministry. Stephen's ministry. Let's jump right in here. Notice letter A, his wonders. His wonders. Look back, look back at verse number 8 of Acts chapter Number six, it says there, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders, wonders, and miracles among the people. Now, we all know Stephen is being stoned, and if you grew up in church uh, the way I did, or you grew up going to Sunday school or youth group, then you've heard the story of Stephen, how that he was arrested. You've heard some version of what we're going to cover tonight. Um, and different emphasis are put on different things. Not too many people focus on verse 8. Most people just look at Stephen went and he picked a fight with a hornet's nest and he got killed as a result. And that is true and that happened. But prior to Stephen picking a fight with the council or the, the, the council picking a fight with him, whichever way it went, Stephen was busy doing the work of the Lord. In fact, Stephen is named as one of the seven men to be chosen to be uh, one of the church's first deacons. He was busy doing the work of the Lord. He was full of the Holy Ghost. He was uh, busy even doing wonders and miracles. And as a result, he was chosen to be a deacon. Mark chapter 16, if you hold your place in Acts chapter 6, turn over to Mark 16. You see, it wasn't just the apostles that would perform miracles. God even allowed common men to do some incredible things. Jesus himself declared that such would happen. Look at Mark 16 and look at verse number 17. Here, Jesus is speaking right before he sends to heaven. The Bible says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. They shall recover. And so God prophesied that those who believed here in this early church would be able to do some incredible, miraculous things. And Stephen had a ministry of doing miracles. Now, the Bible isn't specific about what kind of miracles he did, but I wonder if there weren't those that went and visited the grave of Stephen who rejoiced because before Stephen came into their life, they were deaf or they were blind uh, or at the least lost. And uh, uh, God used Stephen to see them come to a knowledge of salvation or some physical healing to take place. His wonders, let her be noticed, his wisdom, his wisdom. Look back at verse at number 10 of Acts chapter number 6. The Bible says, And they, speaking of the Sanhedrin, the council, they were not able to resist the wisdom, the wisdom in the spirit by which he spake. He spoke with such wisdom they could not resist it. Now, when a Christian is yielded entirely to God's spirit, there is a wisdom that comes from God and is heavenly. You have over here on this team, you have uh, God's wisdom. And over here on this team, you have man's wisdom. And you have these two teams that face each other every single day. And they fight it out, if you will, on the playing field of life. Those who are professing themselves to be wise, the Bible says 
they're made fools. You can look at Romans 1. And then you have those that rely on God. James 1, 5. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. God gives his wisdom to some men. Other men rely on their own wisdom. And these ideas uh, interact and battle against each other every day. And you know what? Uh, God's wisdom wins every single time, every single time. I want you to imagine that you take some state championship basketball team, high school basketball team, and boy, these guys think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Is that how the phrase goes? I'm not old enough to be using that. Uh, greatest thing since peanut butter. Whatever it would be, uh, they're the greatest thing, right? And you, you take this basketball team, these guys are high and mighty on themselves, and you say, hey, i got a new opponent for you, and you put them on the court, and you have them play an NBA team, professional basketball team. I have an idea the score is going to be lopsided, and those guys are going to walk off not feeling like they did so well. Um, maybe uh, you could take a fourth grader who makes straight A's and is extremely smart. Uh, maybe this fourth grader even has a slant or a leaning towards science. And, boy, he's just, he just excels in that science book. And you take that fourth grader and you put him up against a tenured college science professor, there's no question that the college uh, professor, at least in most cases, uh, would, would win going away. Again, no contest. Now, we'll see in just a moment that these religious phonies could not match Stephen's uh, uh, wisdom, but I'm left to wonder how Stephen used that wisdom to help grow the church. How did Stephen use that wisdom to help grow the church? Now, many, many people, God gives them wisdom, uh, but they don't use it to help grow the church. I wonder if Stephen counseled marriages prior to being stoned. I wonder if he ministered to widows. I wonder if uh, he uh, did not take in an orphan child under his wing and mentor him. I wonder if Stephen didn't teach the scripture to new Christians and maybe was involved in some sort of discipleship effort. Stephen's Wisdom, letter C, we see his witness, his witness. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse number 10 again. The Bible says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now notice that word spirit is lowercase. The spirit by which he spake. That does not indicate the Holy Spirit. When you see, uh, in most cases, when you see a lowercase s, it's referring to the spirit or the attitude of a man. Um, uh, how is our spirit expressed? When you speak, you put your hand in front of your mouth and you can feel air being pushed out of your mouth. You must breathe outwardly to speak. That is your spirit leaving you. And so here Stephen ministered with his spirit by which he spake. How did Stephen become such a dynamic Christian? How was he able to do such wonders and miracles? How was he able to proclaim such wisdom? How was he able to be such a bold, effective witness? Look, look at Acts chapter 6 and look at verse number 8 with me again. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, And Stephen, full of faith and power. You see that there? Full of faith and power. Without faith it is impossible to please him. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You cannot be a great Christian unless you live your life by faith. The Bible says he was full of faith, full of faith and power. Where did this come from? Boy, as I read about Stephen here in Acts 6 and Acts 7, I imagine a Christian superstar. I imagine a man who was greatly filled with the power of God and did incredible things in the church. Boy, uh, you take a bunch of Stevens and put them in a church, that church is going to grow. Stephen was a spark plug Christian. A spark plug Christian. I praise God for churches that have spark plug Christians in them. And you think, wow, well, pastor, how do I become a spark plug? plug Christian. Now listen, you may read about Stephen and that idea of all the things he did, you might sit there like me and say, wow, I could never be that. But can I tell you that the, the, what, the reason why Stephen was such a great Christian was because of letter D. Notice his walk. His walk. Look at verse number 15 with me and here we find the secret behind Stephen being such a great Christian. Look here. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, 
saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like an Old Testament story that happened? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here Stephen is. He's been brought in by the council, the way Peter and John were. And they're going to question him. Now again, at this point, the council is far more desperate than they were with Peter and John. Uh, They're losing members out of their ranks, and they're ready to take a more desperate uh, uh, line, more desperate action, and so they're going to be much more hostile with Stephen. Uh, but uh, they look at him while he's sitting there on, on his, in his chair, and they say he, his countenance radiates like that of an angel. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Look, look a little further into the verse. I'm going to start reading a little ways in here. The Bible says, So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. You remember the story where Moses goes up in the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, to get the law, more than just the Ten Commandments, to get the law? And God says to Moses, I want to reveal myself to you. Well, you're so close to me, and you've gotten to, I've gotten to know you, but I want you to know me just a little bit more. He says, Moses, I want to reveal myself to you. Moses is like, great, let's do it. God says to Moses, well, if any man sees me in my glory, it will kill him. You remember God hides Moses in a, in, a, in a cleft of a rock and puts his hand and passes by. And then Moses sees the after effects, the hinder parts of God. And Moses comes down off of the mountain and the people cannot look at him because his face is radiating with the glory of God. Why did Moses' face radiate? Because he had spent time with the Lord. I have wondered, even going back to being a teenager and reading through Acts 6, I've prayed this prayer many times. Lord, help me to walk so close with you that even my visage is so obvious to the world around me, they know I've been with you. Boy, his face shone like an angel. Now, that's a walk with God that I've never had. That's a walk with God that I can only dream of. I think about characters in the Bible that were extremely close to God. Enoch and Elijah, they walked so close with God that they were just taken right up into heaven. Enoch especially. The Bible says he walked with God and he was no more. The Lord took him. God looked at Enoch one day and said, Enoch, you're, you're so close to heaven You might as well not take the trip back home. You're closer to my home than you are your own. Why don't you just come on up here and be with me? Wow. Elijah, God sent a chariot of fire down and took him into heaven. Moses' face glowed because of his time with the Lord. You know, we we see folks accomplish great things for God and we think, well, well, I could never do that. We'll see in a moment that Stephen's going to stand up against the religious system of his day. And you think, wow, what boldness. I, I'm scared to even pass a track out, much less do what Stephen did. Where did he get that boldness? Can I tell you where Stephen got his boldness? Stephen was able to be bold publicly because he was humble private. You see, Stephen learned to take a stand when he first learned to bend a knee. Stephen spent time with Jesus. He had a walk with God. Church, I want you to look up here at me for a minute. Whether you're a child or an adult, the youngest in the room or the oldest in the room, I want everybody's attention right up here. I want to ask you a question tonight. Do you have a personal daily walk with God? Are you so busy with life that your walk with God has fallen by the wayside? Now, those of you here that would say yes to that question, let me ask a follow-up. Has it grown stale and cold and habitual? 
Are you really spending time with God or are you just going through the motions? Reading two or three chapters and reading through your prayer list and prayer and on to the next task. You see, Stephen was able to do great wonders. And he had great wisdom. And he was a bold witness because his walk with God was rich and deep. A lot of pastors get up and they say, be a witness for Jesus, this one included. But you know, if you're not walking with God, you can't really be a true witness for Jesus. Our walk with God needs to be genuine and real. Genuine and real. Many of us, we are busy playing a game. We dress up, we come to church, we smile. We have everyone else's approval on our life, at least here on Sunday. But the Lord Jesus really knows how much time we pray. The Lord Jesus really knows how much time we spend with Him in the Word. Well, let's make sure we don't cut God out of our schedule. Number one, we see Stephen's ministry. Number two, we see the council's method. The council's method. Look at verse number nine. Acts chapter 6, verse number 9. The Bible says, Then there arose certain of the synagogues, which is called the synagogues, synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Let me just take a moment here before we continue the reading and give my best explanation of this that I can, okay? Notice here you have different sects. Now, a synagogue is a Jewish place where folks gather uh, to worship, okay? And so there were synagogues. In fact, Jewish people still worship in synagogues. You say, well, why are there all of these different sects? Now, here's what I believe. All of these people had their own version of Judaism. And so just like we have a variety of denominations in, in the world today, you know, even within the uh, Protestant world. You've got Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and Episcopals and Congregationalists and so on and so forth. You have a variety here. And I believe that some of these had taken Christian tradition of the early church and had mixed it in with Judaism, and you had some sort of a compromise. By the way, this might be of interest to some of you. Notice that in the list there you find the Alexandrians. Almost every English Bible that isn't the King James Version originates from something called the Alexandrian text. The Alexandrians took the writings of the early church writers and they cut out the parts that pertained to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from that uh, came their own version of the Bible, which ended up leading to many versions of the Bible today. I don't know about you, but I don't want a Bible that's tied to a group of people who stoned Stephen. I just don't. You say, well, pastor, the King James is hard to read. It's hard to understand. I would rather have a Bible that's a little bit more difficult to read and understand than to have a Bible that gets its start with a group of people who are responsible for martyring Stephen. Okay? Does everyone understand where I'm going with that? And so um, if it's polluted at, at the root then the whole tree's polluted. If you pollute the stream at its source, the entire stream's polluted. So let's steer clear of those Bibles. But um, anyway, look back at verse number 10. Uh, so we see in group number 9, this, these group of people are irritated with Stephen. They're disputing with Stephen. They're debating with Stephen. And look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now, the old adage is if you can't beat them, join them. Well, their adage was... If you can't beat, beat him, kill him. Literally, that's what they do here. They could, not, they could not win this debate with Stephen. Stephen knew the Scriptures so well that when they came to him and debated with him, he skunked them. He just, he just beat them so bad they weren't able to, to refute it. And so then they decided to take, uh, take uh, matters in their hands and have Stephen brought before the council. Look at verse 11. Then they suborned men, which said, that means they, they paid these men, they hired these men uh, in order to lie about Stephen. Look here. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders. So now it's gone from the synagogue into the temple. And the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses. Where have we seen this before? Which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against his holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. This is literally the exact same game plan they used against Jesus. They hired false witnesses against Jesus. They couldn't get their stories right. Finally, they said that this man Jesus that claims he's going to tear down the temple. He claims to be God. Well, here they're getting Stephen for the same thing. You know, Satan's tricks are usually the same old tricks. He just recycles them and reuses them. And here we see they're using this against Stephen. Number one, Stephen's ministry. Number two, we see the council's method. Number three, notice Stephen's message. Stephen's message. Letter A, notice the explanation. So Stephen's in a courtroom setting with the council, the religious Judaism council. Um, and so we see, look at verse number one, then said the high priest. So the accusation's been laid out, right? Uh, the prosecuting attorneys, if you will, have laid out their claim against uh, Stephen and Stephen's his own lawyer. But here we see the judge, the high priest, he asks one simple question to Stephen. Verse one, are these things so? Are these things so? Stephen's going to stand up and he's going to defend himself. Look at verse number two. And he said, okay, we're going to read for a while here, so uh, get your Bibles out. Look at verse number 2. We're going to read down through verse 38 with little to no comment, okay? And so follow his narrative here with me, okay? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham which he, uh, when he was in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharon, and said unto him, Get thee out of the country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Sharon or Canaan. And from thence... Uh, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, uh, no, not so much as to set his foot on it. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should, should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil Four hundred years, and the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him uh, the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all um, his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there was a dearth over all the land of Egypt and uh, 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 Chanan in uh, great affliction, and our fathers uh, found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and his fathers, and were carried over into Sycam and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought uh, for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the fathers of Sycam. Uh, but when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with uh, our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children, to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughters took him up, and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full, 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that, uh, that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. 
For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one, at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at the saying, and was a stranger in the land of Madian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came upon him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that, he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A Prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto him, uh, uh, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness um, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the likely oracles to give unto us. And so, up to this point, he's just laid out the story for us, uh, going all the way back from Abraham up through the delivery of the Israelites out of Egypt through the hand of Moses. And so I'm sure that like a lot of you, the council's sitting there and they're kind of yawning and thinking, yeah, we already know all this. Stephen, why are you covering the history that we've heard since we were, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper? We, we've heard all of this our whole life. Get to your point, man. Letter A, but he's laying the groundwork. Letter A, the explanation Notice letter B, the opposition. He's laying out the groundwork because he's trying to make a point to them that there's always been a tension in the country between those who sought to follow God and those who sought to oppose those that followed God. Look back at verse number 9 and 10. Chapter 7, verses number 9 and 10. Look here. The Bible says, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now, before we move on, I want to bring up something that's interesting. And this is hypothetical. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. But here's, my, here's what I believe. I believe that had the 11 brothers not sold Joseph into slavery then the famine probably would have never hit the earth. That's what I believe. You say, well, but uh, God had to allow Joseph to be sold into slavery. That way, uh, the world could have been spared from the famine. And I would just ask this question. Who sent the famine? Who sent the famine? God did. Listen, I'm left to wonder that if those 11 brothers had not acted out of envy and sold Joseph into slavery how different Israel's history would have been. Um, Because there was an opposition going all the way back to Joseph, a man who had a heart for God, a man who's having dreams about the stars and the moon bowing down to him and the sheaves in the field bowing down to him, a man at a very young age in Joseph who loved God and 11 brothers who were envious of him and hated him, here you have opposition within the family of Israel. You have a man who loves God and you have the 11 brothers who opposed him. Now we can get into all the reasons as to why and we can get into all the reasons of how Jacob um, showed favoritism toward Joseph and we can get into all of all of that. Uh, but please understand, in its base here, you have 11 of people, 11 brothers who oppose the young man who wants to follow God 
with his life. Look back at chapter 7 and look at verse number 39, and we'll see a theme here. And here's the theme that Stephen's laying out for this council. There are those in Israel, in Israel's history, who sought to do right, and those in Israel's history who opposed those fathers who sought to do right. Look at verse 39. To whom our fathers, speaking of Moses here, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them. Look here. And in their hearts turn back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. These fathers reject Moses. Verse 41, And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idols and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and, God, uh, and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Look at verse 43. Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god, Remphan. You see the opposition here? Moloch is that god where they offered up babies. Right? That god of Moloch lives strong in the abortion industry today. Here we see this idol worship amongst the Israelites. Verse 43 again, Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking to Moses, that uh, he, should, uh, he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the day of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. Build, but Solomon built him in house, albeit the Most High dwelt not in temples uh, made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? Now, what's he saying here? This is, this, I believe this is probably taking place. This uh, uh, trial is taking place in the temple. And he's pointing around at the temple and he's saying, you all worship this building like it's some sort of uh, uh, idol that needs to be bowed down to. He said, let me just remind you what the prophet said of yesteryear, that God does not dwell solely in a building. God, uh, heaven is where he dwells and the earth is just a footstool. The narrative here that Stephen is trying to lay out through, through this history lesson is that there has always been opposition against those who sought to lead Israel in the right direction. Now, before I give you letter C, let me just make a point of application to the church. Don't be part of the opposition of church leadership because you're lining up with people in the Bible that just aren't good. Don't do that. Uh, you, you either sit there and deal with it privately and silently. If you have a struggle or you get that thing figured out, you get behind church leadership. And man, when that happens, boy, we can go. But this opposition that took place was frowned upon heavily. You say, well, well how so? Well, you may remember uh, that... Um, uh, let's see here. You may remember that Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David all tried to lead the country to worship God. Joseph's brothers, Korah and his followers, and many of the rebellious kings all tried to lead the country away from God. You know what Stephen is telling these folks? He, he's telling them that throughout history, there's been a battle between good and evil that's existed. Letter C. Notice the application. Now, Stephen has laid out the history. He has laid out the groundwork, and now he's going to hit them right between the eyes. Look at verse 51. He turns his finger, his bony finger, and he sticks it right in the council's face. Look here. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. 
Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, referring to Jesus, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Ouch! Stephen tells this whole story and lays out this whole narrative of opposition against the the, the leaders in Israel. And then he puts his finger in their face and says, "You, you want to put Abraham and Moses and David on a pedestal as though you worship these guys. No, 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 no. Your fathers persecuted those guys and you now have persecuted Jesus. Well, how do you think that's going to go? I would just say to Stephen here, if your goal is to live, boy, you took the wrong course of action. Uh, you, you, have, you have taken the judge uh, and jury, and you have, uh, you've hit him pretty hard. You, you've hit him pretty hard. Now, I have to believe that um, the reason why this rebuke was not handled very well was because in their heart they knew he was right. You understand, this is the same group of people that paid off the Roman centurions and told them to keep the resurrection of Jesus hush. These are the same people that riled up the crowd to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. These are the same people that had one of their own stand up and say, just a couple of chapters later, say, look, if this thing is of God, you won't be able to stop it. And now they're watching Jerusalem this church roar in attendance. Thousands upon people in their own of their own ranks are leaving. And oh my goodness, I heard someone say one time, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one you hit will yelp the loudest. And boy, Stephen threw a pretty hard rock right in the middle of the pack of dogs, and I think it hit all of them. Because they're all about to yelp real hard. Number four, notice Stephen martyred. Stephen martyred. Letter A, we see the council's reaction. Look at Acts chapter 7. Look at verse number 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Wow! Well, I've seen some people be pretty angry. You know, I've seen guys punch holes through drywall, right? I've seen guys do some really crazy things in a temperous rage. I've seen some women do some crazy things. In fact, I've seen some women do more crazy things in a temperous rage. But I have never seen somebody go chew on someone else out of anger. They were so angry they came and began to bite him. Now, I've seen some toddlers do that. I've seen some toddlers get so angry they'll bite someone else. How many of you here have ever been bit by a two-year-old? Okay. Yep. They got so angry that they ran over. To, you say, Pastor, that didn't actually happen. I think it probably did. I think it did happen. The sermon was so scathing and hit them so hard, they began to bite Stephen. Look down to verse 57. Then they crowded out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. We'll read verse 58 in a moment. You ever had someone who was upset with you begin to get on you and you knew they were right, whether you liked it or not? But you know, it wasn't just enough for them to tell you that you were wrong, they kept going. How many of you are married in the room this evening? You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? They just keep going and going and going and going. And you're like, all right, I got it. Yes, I was wrong. You ever had someone keep going to the place where you just want to put your hands over your ears? I don't want to hear what you have to say anymore. Boy, they were so upset they began to bite him and then they began to put their hands over their ears. Look at verse 58. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. 
Now, um, I'm not going to get gory or graphic tonight, but I hope you understand what the process of stoning someone looked like. You take them down and you put them in a pit, a lower plane. From an elevated plane, they weren't taking little rocks or little pebbles. They were taking boulders and throwing them. Boy, I can't imagine getting hit in the head with a, a rock, you know, that's the size of a quarter um, uh, in width, maybe thicker, but I can't imagine what that would feel like getting hit in the head with that. But imagine boulders coming down and hitting you in the head, taking out your kneecaps. Boy, they, they threw stones at him and rolled boulders down that hill at him until they had killed him. Boy, he had stood boldly and it had cost him his life. Well, how did Stephen respond? Notice letter B, Stephen's response. You see, a, a while back in church we talked about reacting versus responding. These folks reacted, but Stephen, he responded. Look at verse 55. The Bible says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looking up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. I've heard a lot of preaching out of these verses with speculation. So I'll share the speculation that I've heard. We know that Jesus went to heaven and He is seated. He is seated at the right hand. Of the Father. But here in these verses, he's not seated, he's standing. Well, why was he standing? Some have speculated that maybe Jesus wanted to come back right there and rapture the church. The Father wouldn't let him. I don't know. But you're left to wonder. You're left to wonder. He's being chewed on. He's being... He's being punished, and he stands there, and he looks, and he's able to see into the heavens somehow. And he sees the Father standing, standing up for him. You know, he had taken a stand for Jesus, and now Jesus is taking a stand for him. I hear stories about men like William Tyndale being burnt at the stake. And I hear stories from the Crusades about folks having you know, screws turned down into thumbnails and fingernails. People being quartered and filleted alive. And I think, how do these Christians survive that? And here's what I take out of Acts 7. That when that moment comes to die as a martyr for Christ, there's a special grace that's given to be able to endure that at that time. Look at verse 59 and 60. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, or Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, Stephen didn't preach this sermon to the council out of anger or hatred. He preached this sermon because God wanted him to preach this sermon. And as they were stoning him, he cried out, Lord, don't punish them. Boy, he died and asked God to forgive them. Christian, God calls us to have a spirit of grace toward everyone. You say, well, I have an enemy. Are you being gracious to your enemies? I see so many Christians, I'm just going to label them as legalistic. Now, that term legalist refers primarily to someone who mixes works into salvation. I don't mean legalistic in that sense. I mean someone that after they get saved, they're so rules-heavy they become judgmental toward others who won't abide by the same list of rules that they follow. 
Christian, God's called us to show grace to each other. Grace to each other. Someone doesn't have to dot their I's and cross their T's exactly like you do. We need to be gracious with each other. We need to love each other. I see too many Christians that treat their own in such a way that the world looks at how we act sometimes and they think, that's what Christianity is like. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Here Stephen is with a gracious spirit toward his enemies. They're killing him. And just like Jesus cried out from the cross, he cried out the same thing. Lord, don't lay this sin to their record. Every now and then, God calls upon a choice servant to boldly stand for him and to pay the ultimate price. As the culture grows more hostile toward our faith, we must not cower. We must not cower. We must stand with boldness. We must proclaim truth. We must be filled and led by the Spirit of God. We must live lives of holiness. I look at Stephen and I wonder how he could be such a bold and godly man. And I believe there are two factors for each of us to consider. Let me encourage you to write these down somewhere there on your notes. Two questions, two factors, two questions. The first one we already dealt with in the first point of the sermon. Number one, how real is my walk with God? How real is my walk with God? You see, if you're just going through the motions, persecution comes, you're not going to stay the course. You may think you will. Simon Peter thought he would. When push came to shove, he hopped off. He didn't hop in. You say, will I be able to stand like Stephen did? Well, you have to ask yourself this question, how real is my walk with God? And you can't wait until persecution comes to start walking with God. You have to start now. Because if you're not doing it now, you're not going to do it then. Tomorrow, will you read your Bible? Will you pray? And I don't mean go through the rituals. I mean walk with God. Spend time with Him. Question two. How intense is my suffering for God? How intense is my suffering for God? Now that one's not exactly under your control. But here is the final point I'll make in the message tonight. When I suffer for God, it intensifies my walk with God. When I suffer for God, it, it ought to intensify my walk with God. But if you don't have a walk with God to be intensified, then what? Christian walk with God. And as the world gets more hostile toward our faith, it ought to intensify your walk with God. One day... One day, God may call you to be a martyr. And if He does, you'll be ready. Because when it was easy, you walked with God. And when it got hard, your walk with God became more fervent and more intense. Again, turn back over to Acts chapter 6 and look at verse 15. Acts 6 verse 15. And all that sat in the council looking steadily on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Is there something different about your countenance than the lost? Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Just this past week, I had the joy of celebrating 33 years of being saved. Truth be told, 
I've had seasons in my Christian life where my walk with God's been really good. And I've had plenty of seasons in my Christian life where my walk with God has been completely non-existent. Outside of going to church and looking and talking and acting the part, there was no real walk with God. In a room this size, there's probably a handful of you here. You're in one of those seasons where your walk with God is non-existent. If I were to ask you how much you're reading your Bible and praying, the answer would probably be, I could do better. I could do better. Usually that means... I'm not doing it much at all. My friend, Jesus loves you. Each day he's waiting for you to reach out to him. How many here tonight would say, Pastor Lejeune, the Lord has showed me that my walk with God needs to greatly improve. My time with God needs to become more sweet. Maybe you've just completely dropped the ball and you quit walking with God altogether. How many here would say to me tonight, how many would tell the Lord, rather, pray for me that my walk with God will be what it ought to be? Here's my hand. Would you pray for me, Pastor? Lord, I pray tonight you'd help us to follow Stephen's example, a bold witness, filled with wisdom, many wonders and miracles, because he had a walk that was real and genuine. Lord, when his time came to suffer, he was ready. Lord, the world's going to oppose what we do. May we not be surprised by that. May we not be shocked by that. Lord, help us just to stand for what's right. Let the chips fall where they may. Help us to walk with you.